Well, so uh, Christmas Eve, we started the book of First John. And then we took some time off because we needed to ride the peace bike. If you remember that, that was real cute. A lot of you liked that a lot. Some of you said that was ridiculous. And I found out, I actually brought um, the bike that I constructed for my daughter up here. And a couple of uh, hawks out there in the uh, congregation recognized that I had constructed it wrong. And so after the sermon, uh, <laughs> Brian came up and he's like, so did you do that wrong as like an illustration or are you just stupid? I was like, oh. <laughs> Not mechanically inclined. But we're, we're back now. We're back. I haven't, uh, I, haven't fi- I haven't fixed it yet, but I will. We're wondering why she's having such a hard time riding that thing. Uh, but we're, we're, we're past that. We're back to First John. Uh, next week, we'll do a little more of an overview of, of the book. But I just wanted to finish out the, the, the first thought that began um, on Christmas Eve when, when uh, John starts to talk about eternal life. And he starts to talk about the fact that you don't have to wait until heaven to experience and to enjoy and to possess eternal life. In fact, you can, you can have it right now. Um, and that's what we'll see next week. But that's kind of a big theme um, for the book of, of, of what John's trying to accomplish. He's trying to show us how to live eternal life today in this place. Um, one thing that he's going to talk about today is he's going to talk about joy. And joy is something that intuitively we think we understand. Right? Intuitively we think about what joy looks like. And we think, well, joy is kind of when everything's going right. You know, we think about joy primarily in terms of the circumstances of our life. This is our intuition about what joy is and kind of how to get it, how to experience it. And so we might think, um, some of the stuff we actually talked about with the peace bike, that if you've you've got your finances figured out, you know, and you've got some financial security, uh, you've got your leisure figured out. For some people, joy is that two-week vacation in Hawaii. Um, Kids are with you only every third day, so you don't start to miss them too much. Um, but at the same time, you can kind of relax a little bit. Some people um, think, when they think about joy, are going to think about friends, family, being with the people that they love, um, being experiencing that community. Um, for those of us who are a little more like, oh, we got to be Christian too, we're going to remember, and, and, and probably God as well, right? Like something about knowing that God is with us, that God is a part of our lives, that God maybe even has a plan for our life, maybe that God um, is involved deeply in what we're doing. Um, and, and that he saved us, that, that we're, we're secure, and that also can contribute to a sense of, of joy. I want to suggest today that if we look closely at the New Testament, and particularly the beginning of John, First uh, John, we're going to see that that's actually not it. That's a start. It's a good place to begin. And to be fair, in the Old Testament, that actually kind of does sort of sum up a little bit of the Old Testament notion of joy. But if you think of it as, um, as a fudge sundae, um, there's something missing. Um, and I have a couple of uh, examples of, of, of fudge sundaes. So this is your standard fudge sundae. This is a good sundae. It's got vanilla ice cream. There's fudge. You know, it's a little bit meh, but it's, it's pretty good. Uh, I got another one here, a little bit better, up in the game a little bit. Notice if you can see there's strawberry ice cream as well as chocolate. So we've got a few extra flavors going on. A nice, a really good sundae. Also, you can see I Google image searched, and they're trying to keep me from using that photo. So there's like watermarks on it, 
which is terrible. All right, next slide, next slide, next. This one, now look at, this is right here. This is when we're really getting good on the Sunday train. This is your TGI Friday special. Um, this thing's got a little bit of a brownie, some walnuts um, down there to really increase the, the fudginess, the fudge factor. If you're sitting down at a restaurant, they don't have one of these on the menu, I recommend that you leave immediately because they are clearly not bringing their A game. But then we can move to the highest level Sunday. This, oh my goodness. This, if you go to a California Adventure at Disneyland uh, and you go to the Ghirardelli chocolate place, they've got stuff like this. You notice there's like a waffle cone, there's a banana in there, presumably another brownie somewhere underneath, strawberry sauce, um, various nuts. I mean, this, this is a serious Sunday. There is one Sunday out there that is utter garbage. And if you have ever been to McDonald's, and ordered a fudge sundae, you got something like this. Oh, what is wrong with this picture? There's no cherry on top. McDonald's, what, you can freeze like 12,000 million burgers. You can refrigerate all kinds of lettuce, and you can't get some maraschino cherries? Are you kidding me? And yet, there they go. So, I look, I love McDonald's, but never, never the fudge sundae. I suggest to you that maybe the way we look at joy, maybe joy is something where we've got this Sunday, right? All this good stuff, and it's being built up and built up, but something's missing. The critical ingredient, the one thing that goes on top, the cherry on top, and it's, it's ruining, it's, it's stealing a, a genuine and complete experience of joy. So we're going to be looking at that today. What, what is it? What exactly is joy? What is it that, that, that captures it, that, that, that nails it, that, that brings it um, to its fullest expression? And what brings the greatest joy in life? Um, the text is uh, it's in your pew Bibles. It's on the back of your note sheet. Um, it's also going to be on the screen. Um, for those of you who know, I'm working on a commentary for Eerdmans on 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. So I'm going to be preaching out of my translation. Um, I will, however, kind of focus on places that might be different from what you're um, familiar with. And so uh, hopefully as we, we, we'll get a good sense of, of the text. But this is what John writes. He says, we, John and his friends, are announcing what we have seen and heard, Jesus, to you, so that you might have union with us. For indeed, our union is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. So we write these things that our joy may be made complete. Now, the first thing is, if you, if you pulled out your pew Bible, it's New King James, and you opened this text, you would notice a very glaring difference. Namely, the last line, uh, verse 4, it would say, we write these things that your joy may be complete, rather than our joy. Now, um, I, I'll spare you a, a lot of the details of, of how it all works, but basically, we have a whole bunch of really amazing manuscripts of the New Testament, some as early as like the late uh, middle to late first century um, uh, AD, uh, so, uh, late first century, some middle um, to late second century, a lot from the third, fourth, fifth century AD. And when you look at all of these manuscripts and you put them together and you compare the Greek, you're going to find that um, almost all the Greek uh, agrees that it's our joy rather than your your joy. The reason the New King James has a different translation is because of the, what's called the majority text. There's a lot of texts that were much later that all say uh, your. And it's easy to see how it might happen because just like in English, um, the words your and our are really close, 
right? Just a Y is, is the difference. Well, it's, it's humon and hemon in Greek. It's just one little vowel sound that changes it. And so you can imagine how it might have happened as people were copying down um, the, the, the text that they might have uh, been a little bit confused, a little bit, uh, you know, not quite sure. And so they, maybe our, that, that doesn't sound right. I think what John meant is your. And you can see why this might be. Um, if, you, if you look at the text, we're announcing what we have seen and heard to you so that you might have union with us, for indeed our union is with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. We're announcing this for you. We want you to know about what we've seen and heard so that you can join us, so that you can have this experience with God that we have, this experience with Christ that we have. And so we're writing these things so that your joy might be made complete. You could see how that would make sense. And you can also see how it would be a little bit counterintuitive for it to be our joy. Because if, if John and his friends really do share this deep relationship with God and, and, and his son Jesus Christ, then really what do they need? Shouldn't their joy Sunday be full? Isn't, isn't, their, isn't their joy complete already? What else is needed? Well, that last uh, word there, made complete, um, that's actually the, the same word uh, that gets used when you hear um, that these things might be fulfilled. That was said of the prophets, plerao. It's the same word there. And in English, the way it, it sounds, is it almost sounds uh, a little contemporary version might be even, like, might be topped off. It's as though you have a, a drink and it's being filled and filled and filled and, and you want to get it right to the end. You know, you've, you've been at, uh, at Fuddruckers and you've had your meal and you don't want it to end and so you take your to-go cup and you go to that, they have the awesome machine there, the one that you can choose, like you can add cherry to just about any flavor. And so you've got your half full cup and you want to top it off before you leave. In the same way, uh, what John's talking about here is, is a joy that's topped off, made complete. So, why? What, what is it so important about, about our joy? How is it that, that you hearing these things are going to complete our joy? Well, I thought it might be kind of interesting to look at some of the ways that the New Testament talks about joy. And so um, I just have a couple. They're on the back of your note sheet. But let's just run through a couple of, of, of examples of how the New Testament treats joy. Listen, uh, this is from Acts 15. So being on their way, uh, being sent on their way by the church, they, this is Paul and Barnabas on a missionary um, trip, passed through Phoenicia and Samaria and described the conversion of the Gentiles. And they caused great joy to all the brethren. They're on a missionary trip. They're rolling through Phoenicia and Samaria. They let everyone know who the Gentiles have come to believe in the Messiah. And everyone is filled with joy. So there's this sense that other people coming to know about Messiah brings great joy. Uh, this is Paul in 1 Thessalonians. He says, What is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you? In the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ that is coming, for you are our glory and joy. And, and Paul's talking to a church of Gentiles again. Not, uh, these are people who would have been pagans. And they're doing their pagan thing, living their pagan lives. And Paul enters into their life and suddenly he tells them about Jesus. And they form a church. They become integrated to the church. And Paul says, you make my joy. You are my joy. You top off my joy. You're my cherry on top. This is uh, John. John's gospel. Um, we're in 1 John. This is uh, another book that John wrote. Um, we're not exactly sure the timing, which one came first. But, but listen to this. This is Jesus um, talking. He says, Most assuredly, I say to you that you will weep and lament when he goes to the cross. He's talking to the disciples. When, you, when I go to the cross, when I die, you're going to weep and lament. 
But the world will rejoice and you will be sorrowful. But your sorrow will be turned into joy. How? Well, a woman, when she is in labor, has sorrow because her hour has come. But as soon as she has given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish. Jesus might be a tad wrong there. Uh, she might remember it a little. I think he's being a little, I think he's using uh, ornamental language there. For joy that a human being has been born into the world. Uh, quick book plug. Um, they finished the cover art on my, uh, on my first book. It's coming out in September. Um, and it, it's called Labor of God. Uh, the agony of the cross, and the birth of the church. And it, it, drawing on texts like this from John, treats the cross as a moment when, when, when God gives birth to spiritual children, we're born again. And notice what's happening right there. He's describing, uh, he's describing what happens. A woman's in labor, and she has great sorrow. This is the cross. But then, as soon as the child is born, the, the, the pain, the anguish of the cross is left behind because new life is built. New life is born and generated. And, and that brings joy. If we're thinking uh, metaphorically, this is when new life is given to us, those who believe. And that creates great joy. The labor is past. The new life is born. Last one, just briefly. This is uh, in Luke. Um, Jesus says, I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having sent, uh, ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the, ha- sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found the peace which I lost. Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Again, and this is the first thing in your note sheets, the the New Testament is consistent on this. All throughout the New Testament, there is a link between divine and Christian joy and the salvation of the lost. You notice in that last one, even heaven, God himself and the angels, the, the images, the angels in the heavenly throne room with God, and they're all celebrating, all joyful, because one sinner comes to repentance. And this should be a little counterintuitive. I, I, I want to just step for one second. And, we, and those of us maybe who've been Christians for a while, we might think we understand. I get it. I'm kind of a mature person. You know, I remember when I was a little baby Christian, when I first came to faith, and that was really exciting. But now, as a more mature you know, believer, I see that, and, I, I, and, I, and I'm, I'm happy for that person, and that fills me up with great joy. And maybe this is a little bit analogous to when we say, like, when you're a kid, you really like getting presents at Christmas. But when you become an adult, you enjoy the the true joy of Christmas, which is giving presents to your kids, which is nonsense. Everybody knows it's way better to get something than it is to give something. And it might just be because I'm cynical, I'm not sure. uh, But I tell you, I like, look, I like giving presents to my kids, I do. um, But I like getting stuff more. (laughs) Um, And, and... Okay, but even, even, even if you're a better person than I am, even if you're a better person than I am, I think, I think that there's something a little bit almost condescending about that kind of joy. Like, oh, I've figured it out, and now you're just experiencing it for the first time. I don't think that's what's going on in the text. In fact, I think if we dig a little deeper in the text, we're going to see why it is, why it is that, that bringing new people in is, is the joy, the fullest joy, the, the topping off joy, the cherry on top joy. And so let's look um, again at, at the text. 
You'll notice um, I translate that word union. That word union shows up. Um, behind that word is, is, a, is a Greek word koinonia. If you're in the New King James, uh, typically it's translated fellowship. We have fellowship uh, with God and uh, the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. We want you to have fellowship with us. If you've been a Christian for any length of time or you've hung out with Christians, you know that Christians are the only people who use the word fellowship. Uh, no one else has ever used that word for any reason. Maybe 150 years ago, but not now. And typically what Christians mean when they say fellowship is they mean something like hanging out together and eating prime rib and laughing. That's like, that's, would you like to fellowship with me? If, if anyone says that to you, what they mean is I'm inviting you to my house so we can eat prime rib and laugh. That's, that's the, the translation there. Um, I, I, I've, I've gone with union um, for a, an important reason, and, and that's because if you're familiar with the world of the ancient Near East, this word koinonia, uh, uh, sharing, fellowship, asso- close association, um, it's actually only used uh, for, for really members of a household. Um, basically, in the ancient Near East, uh, your household is not just mom and dad and, and brother and sister. Um, it, it's, it's actually your household is mom, dad, uncles, aunts, second, third, fourth removed cousins, uh, grandparents, grand, great-great-grandparents, um, some very close friends, uh, possibly the people that you work with. A household is a very large organization. And within the household, within the household, koinonia is expected. Fellowship. And what that means is, in the household, everybody shares everything. There's no ownership in the household. Well, okay, yeah, the Potter Familius, the guy at the top, he kind of owns it all. But it's, it's, it's shared and shared alike. It's given freely amongst the people in the household. This is very strange for those of us from North America, uh, because we don't have anything like this. Uh, the closest is, you know, my parents treating me as an only child, like I can just have whatever I want. That's about the closest thing. But really, we tend to keep our associations separate from finances. We tend to, you have your friends, um, and then you have your money, and, and the two don't, don't cross very often. In fact, it's kind of a big deal when we get to a, a, a place in our friendships where we're willing to give gifts and we're willing to share um, with people. That's not the way it is in the ancient Near East. And moreover, in the ancient Near East, in order to be a member of a household, um, it's actually pretty difficult. You, you, you don't just, I mean, you're born in, that's it. It's really hard to go from being an outsider to being an insider. You have to spend a lot of time um, actually in, 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 in relationships of reciprocity where you give a gift and they give a gift and you show your loyalty and they show their loyalty. And then over a long period of time, probably not even in your life, maybe in the life of your kids, your two families will come to a place of koinonia. But you see how that works. It's, it's tit for tat. It's I scratch your back, you scratch mine. It's not something that's freely given. And it's certainly not something that you would have with anybody who's different than you. In this way, uh, koinonia is something reserved only for those who share your opinions, share your politics and religion and, and uh, views on the world and, 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 all of the, you, and who look like you, who are members of the same social class, members of the same economic class. It's not something that's just spread. And in that way, koinonia in the ancient world is nothing like the gospel. You see, what John is telling us, we're, we have, we're announcing to you what we've seen and heard. 
You see, Jesus has come, and John has lived with Jesus. John has met Jesus and known him. John has experienced Jesus' life. And he knows the way God does things is different than the way we do things. God is free and utterly gracious. God doesn't withhold anything. God, God gives it all. In fact, God gives so much that he gives his only son. And God doesn't do it just for, you know, the one tribe. Did you notice when we were uh, looking at those earlier texts in the New Testament, how often um, uh, the, the authors were talking about Gentiles coming in, pagans, people who were very far off, very different than Jesus, very different than the earliest Christians. They weren't Jews. They were, they were barbarians and Scythians and slaves and free uh, and men and women, as you'll read in Paul elsewhere. They were so different. It wasn't just for a tribe. It was for anyone who heard and believed the good news of salvation. If we think about who God is, God the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ, God gives relentlessly to His Son. And His Son returns His glory completely and fully. There's, a, 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 there's no reciprocity. Instead, there's mutually endless self-giving. The koinonia that God experiences and the koinonia that God offers to the church is nothing like what we see in the world because it is free and it respects no divisions. It's the second thing in your, your note sheets. In contrast to the koinonia fellowship or union practice in the ancient Near East, Christian koinonia respects no worldly divisions and has no strings attached. Anybody can have this. Anybody can enjoy this sharing, this, this close, intimate experience of life. All you have to do is believe. And once you have believed, you will see what God has done. He has given of himself completely to you, for you. And he has not cared that you are utterly alien from him. That you are finite and he is infinite. That you are small and he is large. He doesn't care about any of that. He is still willing to reach across eternity to come and find you and, and own you and, and become one with you. There is no extent, no ditch, no, no gulf that God will not cross to be with us. And he doesn't ask for anything in return. He just says, I've done it, believe. And the kind of community that develops around that is the kind of community that has no divisions, that has no strings attached. And if you've been here for any length of time, you know that that's how we operate. Because we take our cues from Christ Jesus. If you're wondering what the cherry on top is, and you're wondering why it is that it is, it's simple. Nothing beats becoming one in Christ. Nothing in the world beats becoming one in Christ. This is radically counterintuitive uh, because when we think about um, becoming close to people, we, we talk about friendships, we think of, of you know, associations based on mutual interests, associations based on, oh, you make me laugh, associations based on, I think you're pretty, associations based on all of these external things. And what God says instead is what really is the deepest and greatest joy in life is to become one and united with people who are radically different than you are. People who are your opposites. For those of you who are married, uh, you know that this is true. Uh, if, you've, if you've been married, you know that um, you're really, really different than the person you're married to. 
Like radically so. And, and no matter how long you are married to a person, they still can be mysterious to you. They still can be shocking to you. You might be able to predict some of the things they do, but you've never walked in their shoes. You don't know what it's like to be them. It, it, you just can't. You can't bridge that gulf. And yet, in the mystery of union, you're still one. This is why the New Testament likes so often to use the image of marriage as a way to think about our union with Christ because it's, it's, a, very, it's, a, it's a tangible, real way that, that a lot of people can, can relate. But this is, and this is the offensive, this is the, this is the crazy truth. The New Testament and John think that union in the church is even better than union in marriage. And I'm talking about like a really good marriage, a really great marriage, perfect marriage. Even better than that, even better than that is union in the church. Now you might wonder why. What is it about the church that's so powerful. Well, we've seen, um, you know, we talked about the fact that it's, it's utterly gracious, it's free. We've talked about the fact that it crosses divisions and lines of, uh, that divide us normally, race, class, tribe, all those things. There's, there's, there's one element, I think, that really kind of brings it all together. And, and I'm reminded, I have a friend, uh, some of you know him, so I won't use his name, but he says this, and this is a little bit offensive, but he says, I like going to church because that's where the weirdos are. Now, my friend who says this, no, don't be offended, okay, he, uh, he wasn't talking about you probably, uh, but <laughs> uh, my friend who says this is himself a bit of a weirdo um, by, you know, the standard, when he says weirdos, he's usually talking about normal people, <laughs> and the normal people will look at him and be like, he's kind of a weirdo, um, and, and I, I was asking him about this, I was like, man, I, I just don't get it, what, what is it about, what, what, are you, what are you trying to communicate? And he says, well... If it weren't for the church, I never would have hung out with so-and-so, right? And, and, and it's the craziest thing. We disagree on politics. Uh, we disagree on movies. We disagree on everything that supposedly matters in the world. And yet, because we're both committed to the person of Jesus Christ, we've been brought together, and we have a really deep, incredible friendship. We have nothing in common, and yet we're one. About 10 years ago, um, during the uh, invasion of Iraq, uh, one of, at the time, one of our Marines from Camp Pendleton, his name was uh, Tom, he, uh, he was here and he got to give a sermon. He, his sermon, of course, he's a Marine. So it was about one of those Old Testament stories where someone like stabbed somebody in the head. It was awesome. Uh, it's the story of Ehud. And I remember he actually was up here, this is about 10, 15 years ago, and he pulled out his K-bar, which is like a, it's like a, a marine knife, I guess, like this huge thing. He's like, no, notice it's serrated. So when you pull it out, it like takes the guts with it. I was like, everyone's like, aha, okay, man, different experience, awesome. Um, <laughs> and he, he, it was so funny though. He, um, he talked about being in Iraq during the invasion, and uh, you know, the incredibly stressful time. And and he talked about going to church. And he said, you know, it was amazing. There were there were contractors from. North Africa and East Asia. And, th- and there were, you know, Episcopalians and evangelicals like me. And there, we were in a tent, you know, because we had to move quick. But we all got together and we were singing these songs. And we were singing them in like four different languages all at the same time. And he said, it was a little piece of heaven. Because all of the things that divide us, 
in that tent stopped mattering. It wasn't like the contractors from North Africa stopped being North African. It wasn't like they, they changed the, who they were and became something utterly different. It's not that at all. In, in fact, they were utterly themselves, but they were Christians. And, and, and the bond between Tom and these North Africans was, was deeper and stronger and more real than even blood. Because he was a spiritual brother, and, and, and they were spiritual brothers and sisters to him. They had become one, despite all of the things that divided them. If we're wondering why it is that the cherry on top of your joy is inviting people who are different than you and becoming one with them, it's this. We who believe bear the image of God. And that is what God himself has always done. That is what God himself did most fully in the person of Jesus Christ. He overcame difference. He came after us, and he didn't do it expecting something in return. He did it freely and graciously, and he didn't quit on us. And he said, I invite you in, regardless of who you are, regardless of what you've done and where you've been, and I want you to be with me. And because we now bear his image restored and full, that what gives him joy is what gives us joy too, even if it's counterintuitive. The reason we don't believe it is because we're human beings and we've been corrupted by the world, we've been shaped and changed, and we think that what we really want is to be with a whole bunch of people just like us. What God says is, I want you to be one with the people I call, no matter how different how strange they might be. And when you experience that, as John did, your joy will be topped off. Which means, unfortunately, that there is some practical application to this sermon. Because if you're following where I'm going, it might be that you're being called out of your comfort zone. Because you might be called to invite people who are different than you into this place or into a small group. Now, uh, there is one person who is really good at this, and it's not me. I, I, I'm, I'm like, I, man, it is so hard for me to talk to people about, because I feel like I'm selling something that I have a financial interest in, right? I mean, it doesn't feel, it's like, oh yeah, you should definitely come to our church. Don't forget your pocketbook. <laughs> Like, we do take an offering, FYI. But there is one person who's really, really good at this. Uh, Jen Harrison. Um, Jen Harrison uh, was in an elevator one day with um, a girl that she'd never met. And the elevator broke. And so they were trapped together in the elevator, I think for 72 hours at least, right? There's, there's a Lifetime movie um, available about it, just kind of giving the... No, nah, I'm just kidding. It was probably like 15 minutes. I don't know. But, but in that 15 minutes... <laughs> Jen got to know this girl and said, hey, you should come to church. And uh, for those of you who know Leith and Patty, they, uh, they had to leave because he, um, he moved uh, with the Navy. But, uh, I mean, what precious friends they were and so and are, and yet so different in so many ways, uh, for me at least. And so, Jen, I appreciate that. And then Jen had a work colleague that she ran into randomly, and they were just gabbing about, you know, life. And she's like, you know what? You should come to our church. No, I mean... Jesse and Christina, we were praying for Jesse's mom who just had a stroke yesterday. Dear, close friends brought to us, not because Jen is like, you know, the most amazing, you know, Christian ever, but because Jen just understands that what really brings our joy to its fullest extent, its deepest place, is when we say, I'm going to step across this line and I want you to be with me. 
I want you to see and taste what I've seen and tasted. I want you to meet, as John says, the one I've seen and I've heard, Jesus Christ. And when you do, it doesn't matter how different we are, and it doesn't matter what we look like and what we think. We are going to be bonded together in a way that you cannot believe now. And when you do believe, when you do experience it, you will know that this is what you've been looking for all your life. Because you now are like God, and this is what God is like. Brothers and sisters, you may have a McDonald's fudge sundae today. It might have everything it needs except for the cherry on top. And if it does, then I'm asking you, invite someone to be a part of your small group. Invite someone to be a part of your uh, Christian ministry. Invite someone to come to this place. Invite somebody who's different to be a part of this place and who we are. And in that, I think you're going to have the cherry on top of your joy. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, we thank you so much for reaching out to us as different and far off as we were. Freely and without any expectation of return, with no strings attached, overcoming dividing lines with your love and drawing us to yourself. I pray that that we will take the initiative to live like you, as John and his friends did. And that we will invite others to be one with us through faith in your Son. We ask, God, that you will top off our joy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.